The following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. The passage is Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 19, page 1054 in the Church Bible. The parable of the tenants. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Brilliant. Thanks, Julian. Uh, Here we go. Here's some handouts uh, to send around. So over the summer... We've been looking at uh, stories Jesus told and had a great time, morning and evening, looking at uh, parables in Luke's gospel. And this is our final one, uh, the parable of the tenants. And um, uh, do keep that open there in in Luke. And uh, it is quite um, quite a story, quite a sobering story. And one of the things we've discovered, been discovering as we've been looking at these stories is how they often have a bit of a sting in the tail. Uh, they've got a bit of um, punch to them uh, that can leave us a, a little bit winded um, and we can feel the force of it, uh, but then can encourage us to turn uh, to the right solution. And this one is no different at all. Uh, so... Um, this one here, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a big one, really. It, it takes us right to the heart of the story of Israel. It takes us right to the heart of the story of the world. It takes us uh, right to the heart, actually, of the story of our lives and the message 
of Christianity. So let me uh, walk us through this. As you'll see on the handout, we're going to think about, uh, I'll walk us through first the story itself, and then we'll think about how it's the story of Israel, it's the story of the world, it's the story of our lives. Uh, So the story itself, what is going on here? We have a, a man who plants this wonderful vineyard, uh, a fantastic vineyard. Um, I don't know if you've seen a vineyard, just beautiful things, vineyards, uh, producing uh, wonderful grapes and uh, a wonderful place. And what he does is to rent it out to some farmers. And then he goes away for a long time. And when it comes to harvest, he sends a servant of his to his vineyard to speak to the tenants and to receive what's his due. That would have been a pretty normal thing to do back then. The way you would pay your rent often could be through just giving a share of the harvest to uh, the landlord. But what happens? This is where the shock comes in. Uh, When the servant turns up, what happens? Well, they beat him, uh, the first one, and send him away without anything. Outrageous, appalling behavior. So, uh, the man who owns the vineyard sends another servant. And do you see, as the story goes on, the violence escalates. And we see in verse 11, this time they beat and treat this person shamefully. And again, send him away without anything. Then, the landlord sends a third servant. And this time, verse 12, we see they're wounded and thrown out. And so we get to uh, verse 13 and we read this. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. But of course they don't. They don't. Instead they come up with what is frankly a pretty daft plan. They see this person coming who is the heir to the vineyard. And they think, I know what's going on here. Perhaps the dad is dead, the landlord's dead, and here's the heir, and we get rid of him, then we can take this for ourselves, totally. And so what do they do when they see him? Verse 15, they threw him out, and they kill him. It's a pretty shocking story of pretty poor behavior. But it's even more shocking when we understand the context in which Jesus is Uh, Speaking, if you have a look at the beginning of chapter 20, verse 1, you'll see the context. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts, so he's right at the heart of Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, and he's proclaiming the good news about himself, and then some chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. So he's there right at the heart of Israel, and he's speaking to all these people, And these leaders of Israel are around him. And it's pretty clear that everyone knows what is going on here, what this story is about. It's not just a nice story about a vineyard and tenants and um, uh, their appalling behavior. It's actually a story about Israel, uh, God's people. And it's very clearly, step by step, a story of Israel. Uh, If you know the story of Israel, let me uh, give you a quick summary of it. The story of Israel is the story of a people who were rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, uh, led by Moses, 
Uh, they were taken through the Red Sea, amazing, miraculous parting of the Red Sea. And uh, after a number of years, they were taken through the desert to the promised land of Canaan. And the promised land was a land filled with milk and honey, a lush vineyard that was given to them to provide all they needed, that they were there to look after it, as it were, on behalf of uh, God himself, God giving them this land. But what did they do, the people of Israel? Well, if you read through the New Test- Old Testament, you'll see they rejected God's rule. They worshipped other gods. They disobeyed God's law in all sorts of different ways. Not least, they didn't care for the poor, and they didn't do as God called them to do. And God sent, and we see this in the story of the Old Testament, prophet after prophet after prophet. Uh, In other words, servant after servant after servant was sent to warn them, to tell them, to change their way, to tell them, you've got to give God what is his due. Uh, The obedience, the worship, the honor, that is God's due. But they didn't listen to them. Instead, they ignored them. They rejected them. Uh, Right up until John the Baptist, which you read about at the beginning of uh, the Gospels. So now what does God do? Now he sends his one and only son, the son whom he loves. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism, how the voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love? And there he is, God's son, who God loves, standing right in front of Israel and Israel's leaders. And what is the shock here? The shock is that they're just about to reject him again. They're about to kick him out of Jerusalem and hang him on the cross. You just need to turn on two more pages and you will uh, read all about that and Jesus' crucifixion. And so what we see here are the people of Israel, they want to live life in this beautiful land that God has given them. They want all the good things that God has given them, but they don't want God himself. And the Bible has a word for this. It's the essence of sin. Uh, Wanting to take the good things that God gives us, but to reject God himself. It's killing off God and stealing his gifts. It's both murder and theft. And that was the story of Israel. But of course, the story of Israel gives us a picture of the story of the whole world. If we read in the whole context of the Bible, we see that this is just the story of the whole world. That God has given humanity this wonderful world to live in. And with everything that we need, food, water, clothing, shelter, one another, beauty, we have everything we need. And yet the world is ignored. The one who owns the world, who made the world. Living and enjoying this world as though its maker and owner doesn't exist. Uh, A number of years back, and I put it on uh, the picture on your um, handout, there was a a bus campaign by a group of atheists, and it captures so well the attitude that the world so often has towards God, which is this, there is probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And that is really what is going on here. That's what the tenants are saying. There's probably no God. Forget it. He's in a distant land. Who knows where he is? Um, We'll ignore him. And we'll just enjoy 
what we've got here is writing God out of the script. And of course, it's not just the world as a whole. This is the story of our lives too. This is our story. That in all our hearts, by nature, we love to take the good gifts that God gives, but we reject the giver of those gifts. We reject our creator, the Lord of all, the one who made everything, who's given this world to us. And by nature, we do that in so many different ways. We starve him of our attention, our interest. We fail to give him our worship, our, our obedience, the honor and love that is his due. We take his gifts of family and friends and uh, the intelligence he's given us and the personalities he's given us and the, the health he's given us and the experience he's given us and we want to use them for ourselves and we write God out of the picture. To all intents and purposes, we kill off God and we steal from him what is his due. That is the reality of sin that by nature is in all our hearts. And this story goes on to tell us what God's response to this sin is. And we see two things here. Firstly, there is a day of judgment. There is a day of reckoning. And I guess that's probably fair enough. I don't know if you've been following in the news. Um, the thefts from the British Museum. Uh, all sorts of cartoons around it, but... Uh, there's clearly been quite a lot of materials which have been kept in the British Museum which have been taken out by one of its curators and stuck on eBay and being sold on. I don't know if you, you saw that. I, I read some, something one person said, museum, you've got one thing, one job to do, and that is to, to keep hold of these uh, amazing ancient historic artefacts. Uh, and yet uh, they've been going off and being sold off and stolen off. And uh, surprise, surprise, the person who was responsible for that, um, did they keep their job? Did they say, oh, I tell you what, you've done really well there. Why don't you take on the Byzantine uh, section as well or whatever it might be? No, they got sacked. Of course they did. Because if we behave in that sort of way, there's going to be a consequence to that. And the way in which God responds to... Uh, the behavior of the tenants here, the, uh, the landlord responds to the behavior of the tenants. When we read this story, it, we've got to say, it's fair enough. Uh, have a look at it from verse 15. We read this, half, sort of near the end of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to these people who've killed his son and will refuse to give him what is his due? Well, what's he going to do? Verse 16, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is why we know people listening knew this was about Israel, because they then said, well, God forbid, they're, they're alarmed by this. What is this saying? Is God going to leave the people of Israel? But it's only right. There is judgment for the tenants. There's judgment uh, for Israel. And actually, if we know our history, uh, that happened to uh, Israel. In AD 70, Jerusalem was sacked by 
the Romans and was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And it was a picture of God's judgment. But ultimately it points to a future judgment that the Bible speaks about, a final judgment for all the world. Where we're told that if we're to reject God, the author of life, who gives us all these gifts, uh, good things, then we will be ejected from this world. We'll be ejected, as it were, from his vineyard, from his kingdom, the place where life is found. And so we'll face the judgment of death. And that's only fair enough. This story helps us so well see the justice of that. And the story really unpicks the, the tragic irony of sin. The irony of sin is that we try to gain life by killing off God. We think that's where life is found. Writing God out of the picture and keeping the good gifts for ourselves. And yet, we lose our life by doing that. We lose our life by doing that. So that's the first thing we see from God's response. There is a day of judgment. There is judgment. But we also see in this story a God of amazing patience. A God of amazing patience. Do you notice how uh, in this story it's servant after servant after servant. Again and again God sent prophets to Israel to warn them. Not just one. Multiple prophets. Again and again. And he even went so far as to take the risk of sending his own son. That's how much he wanted to get this message across to the tenants that were behaving so badly. And we see just a picture there of God's patience, not just with Israel, but with the whole world. And that patience is borne out now, today. He's patient with us for 2,000 years. He's been delaying his final judgment from this time and every day is a day marking his patience and an opportunity for us to turn back to him. And we see how he is also promising to give the vineyard to others. Do you see that at the end of or in the middle of there of verse 16? He wants to welcome other people in. Now how does all this happen? Uh, where is hope found in this story? Well, he starts to change uh, the metaphor uh, from verse 17. And we see this, verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them, at uh, the people around him, at the leaders of Israel, those who were about to kill him. Looked directly at them and asked this. Then what is the meaning of that which is written? And he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And this is really the key to this story. It's the key to life. Is where is hope found? Hope is found in perhaps one of the least likely places one might think. In the stone that's about to be rejected, the stone Speaking of Jesus, who himself is about to be killed, he's about to be put on a cross. And you think, well, what hope can there be in that? And yet, the stone the builders rejected is going to become the cornerstone, the keystone, 
in the building. The whole building is going to be held up by this cornerstone. It speaks really of Jesus' vindication. Yes, he died, but through his death, he brought salvation and God raised him from the dead and he's now ascended into heaven and he will return to rule and reign for all eternity. This stone that's rejected, that is, it's a bit like, do you know that sort of screw that we chuck in the bin and think, oh, that's, what's, well, that's just not useful, that's not important, and we discover that's the screw that holds the whole bed together. I'm sure we've all been there. Uh, that is what's going on here with Jesus. Uh, they seem to think, you know, this is, this is one they can get rid of to receive life. And that is left to our sinful nature. We think, get rid of God, get rid of Jesus, get him out of the picture, and we can really then start enjoying life. And actually, it's completely the opposite. It's quite a striking point that Jesus makes there in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone, speaking of Jesus, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The picture's there. Think of a sort of a pot and uh, a solid stone. And it's a bit like if you drop the pot onto the stone, what's going to happen to the stone? The stone's going to be fine, but the pot's going to smash into pieces. And if you've got the pot on the floor and you drop the stone, what's going to happen to the stone? The stone's going to be fine. It's the pot that's going to be smashed into pieces. And the sense there is that we're to turn to Jesus. He is the one who will be vindicated. He is the king of kings. He is the ruler of all. And to think that we're going to sort of be able to fight Jesus and, and get rid of him and kill him off and then be better off ourselves is ludicrous. It's crazy. But instead, Jesus is saying, and he's saying this as a loving warning, come to me, come to me, and you'll find life. Come to me. Put your trust in me, and I'll be the cornerstone. I am the cornerstone. Uh, think of it in terms of uh, a building. The cornerstone was what held the whole building together. Uh, in today's language, maybe it's the, the load-bearing wall that holds the whole building together. And if you've had a disaster in a building project and sort of knocked down the load-bearing wall, you'll know about it because the whole house falls in on itself. Uh, Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, all of life holds together on him. And so we're invited to build our lives on him. And I think that's a great message for us as we go into a new academic school year, a new term, uh, as we begin uh, a new season in the evening service next week with uh, beginning at 515 and a, and a slightly new feel to that. Uh, what, is, what has got to be at the heart? What's got to be at the key for us as a whole church family, for us as individuals in this term ahead, in this year ahead? It is to build our lives on Jesus. Not to reject him, but to come to him, to put our trust in him, to follow him, to worship him, to obey him. And we got a chance to, to express that now uh, together because we're going to share the Lord's Supper in a few moments. We're going to sing and express our desire to do that. Uh, we're going to sing an obvious song to sing, having just seen this and read this passage, Cornerstone, uh, a way of expressing our desire to, to build our life on Jesus as our cornerstone.
And then as we share the Lord's Supper, we'll be reminded of all he did for us. Uh, He seems to be, uh, through his death, it, it seems as though he's a failure. And yet God vindicated him. And through his death, uh, raised him to life and bring salvation for all who put their trust in him. So uh, perhaps the band, band will come up now. Uh, why don't we stand? Let me um, lead us in prayer. And then we'll spend some time to, at the beginning of this new year, um, with our voices, as we share the Lord's Supper, a way of expressing our trust, our dependence, our desire to build our life on him. So let's just take a moment of of quiet. Heavenly Fathers, we look into our hearts. We know that our sinful nature wants to take what is good, all that you've given us, but to reject you and not to give you what is your due the love, the honour, the worship, the obedience. And Lord, we're very sorry for that. Rather, we want to turn to you and we want to build our life on your son, the cornerstone. And Lord, give us the humility to do that. Give us the confidence, knowing who he is, that he died in our place, paying the penalty that we deserve, taking the death that we deserve for our sin. But through him, through trust in him, through union with him, we are given life. Lord, please help us to trust in him now. In his name we pray. Amen.